there's a weird thing that happens as, as people progress their careers, at least this has been my experience, something that I discarded years ago, you know, 10 years ago. I can look back now and I say, like, okay, first of all, I know why this teacher wanted me to do it this way. Second of all, I know why it failed <laughs> at that time. And third of all, now I can see the value. So yeah. like, let's, let's go back. Let's try this thing again. Let's see if we can figure out, you know, what this, what this person was trying to help me with. Warning. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is David Dash. David, well, he's a busy man. In addition to his teaching position at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, David is also a member of the Grammy-winning Santa Fe Opera Orchestra, the principal cornetist of the North Carolina Brass Band, and principal trumpet of the Chamber Orchestra, The Triangle. He's also half of the Dash Duo, performing alongside his wife, Mary Elizabeth Bowden, and co-founder of the Apex Trumpet Symposium. And he's just getting warmed up. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, this episode of uh, the Trumpet Gurus Hang, I am uh, getting to hang with my new friend, brand new friend, Mr. David Dash. And David, how are you? I'm great. Uh, really psyched to be doing this. Thank you for having me on. Oh, well, it is absolutely my pleasure. Um, you know, that's part of part of the joy of the hang is uh simply that it's the hang it's getting to know people it's the process it's uh you know the questions it's the discovery and uh and being trumpet players of course there's going to be a level of uh, stupidity that's involved with it because <laughs> there's just something about us man there's just something there, there, there's something that's not right up up there to make us play. i don't know whether it's that's what made us play or is the result of all that back pressure so, so many brain cells lost i guess yeah. <laughs> So anyway, uh, it, David, you are, um, you know, you're, you're quite the accomplished uh, performer and uh, the educator. You're that well-rounded man. Um, where, are, where are you currently located? Because then you kind of bounce back and forth between a few, few different locations. So where are you today? Uh, I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This is where the University of North Carolina School of the Arts is located. Uh, this is where my home is with uh, my wife, Mary Elizabeth Bowden. Uh, so that's where I am right now. Okay. I know you were, you were recently, uh, you were in, in Santa Fe for, for a stretch as well. Uh, you, are you still actively working with the, uh, Santa Fe opera then I take it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're, uh, I just finished my, uh, 12th season, uh, not counting COVID year, uh, which, which, uh, they canceled the season last year, but, um, I just, I love it out there. It's a 10 week season. It's an incredible organization. Uh, it's a, a great place to hang out. And Mary played in the orchestra also this year. So we got to hang out all summer and uh, do some hiking and grilling and, uh, hanging out with friends and, uh, played some great music and it was a good time. Yeah. And, and Duke was with you. <laughs> That's right. We got to get Duke in there. And our other cat, Sophie was with us as well. Oh, okay. So you're a two cat family. Yeah, we're a two-cat family, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, you know, yeah, that, that's probably a good thing. So uh, let's let's kind of start with um, kind of some of the, you know, getting people to know your background a little bit. Um, I know that, that uh, you spent some time with uh, the military bands, 
uh, and you also spent some time uh, with uh, the Naples down in Naples. Um, so, which which came first? Was it uh, the Naples gig or the? It, it was the Marine Band. It was the President's Own. Uh, I started I started doing that. I, I went to uh, grad school at Manhattan School of Music, and I finished. And I was kind of gigging in New York and, and uh, looking for opportunities. And this was um, the one that that worked um, pretty soon after that. Um, and so I, I did four years there, and it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, I just I learned so much. Uh, and I walked in the door, and I figured, like, okay, I've got four years minimum here. It's for, you know, this, you're, you're not going to get out uh, earlier than that for sure. And that's the same like as an undergraduate degree. And I want to learn as much in these four years as I did, you know, when I was an undergraduate. So I took lessons with uh, a lot of different people, uh, notably uh, Renee Shapiro um, from the uh, Baltimore Symphony, Andy Balio, Tim White from the Kennedy Center Opera, uh, a number of other people around the country. And um, I really wanted to get an orchestra gig, so I started auditioning and. Uh, Naples uh, worked out, so I went uh, directly from the Marine Band uh, down to Naples, Florida. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have a lot of friends that are playing in the military bands, uh, either past or present, and that's something that I always uh, you know talk to people about and, and asking about is like there, there seems to be a, a mindset that um, that you have to have to be in that environment. And uh, most of the guys I know are are, are like in the uh, the jazz bands, like you know the the Airmen or the the, the Army Blues or things like that. But um, in terms of like you know being a, a cornet soloist, that, that, am I correct? That was your your position. I I did play uh, one one solo, and I toured with the group as many many people do. But that wasn't my role. I was a section player there. You were a section player. Okay. Well, cool. I was incorrect on that one but uh in in the in those touring situations um you know with the military there there's certainly a level of um you know you you are not just a player you are representing something much larger than you and uh there it doesn't get much larger than you know representing the u.s government so um did you feel that that you know having been in that environment and now being in the environment, uh, you know, of uh, being more of a freelance player, uh, even, even though you have positions with, with some organizations, but also you and, and uh, your wife do your duos and you do solo gigs and things like that. Um, do you feel like that there was um, an added layer of pressure or expectation that was put on you in the military that, that you didn't feel anywhere else? That's an interesting question. Um for me not really um you know i i think i put a lot of pressure on myself no matter what the situation is yeah well (laughs) i felt i felt a lot playing in the orchestra and i felt a lot playing in the marine band and um uh, but there there is that element of your your part of something which is um has a lot of history the the president's own is one of the first musical organizations one of the first organizations of any type in this in this country i mean they're they're um archives are really incredible mm-hmm. and so uh you know you feel kind of you feel the weight of that history you know the the pictures are on the walls there's like a picture of john philip Sousa. you know it's, <laughs> and it's and it's amazing to be part of this organization i felt very lucky to mm-hmm. to be part of that but even when you're playing an orchestra you're playing brahms and beethoven and Mahler, and you know there, there's that kind of weight of history there also you know yeah. you just feel lucky to 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 channel this incredible music and and to be part of this whole thing and I think that's what drew me to um, the sound of an orchestra in the first place was uh, was the sound of the, the whole section 
together, you know, making this incredibly powerful, resonant, exciting sound. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the the work that you would do, say, as uh, when you when you're at Naples, uh, as opposed to the work that you do with uh, an opera co- company like the the Santa Fe, um, how would you classify the the distinction between, or is there a distinction between your roles in those two types of organizations? I think so. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, of course. I mean, your job. Uh, I played section uh, trumpet in both places uh, for the most part. You know, occasionally I'd play first on something. But, um, you know, my job was to was to contribute and listen and balance and, uh, you know, support. And, um, you know, I think the nature of an opera company orchestra is that it's subservient to the singers, usually, you know. So you wind up looking at something that says three Fs and you're really playing mezzo piano. You know, but that's okay. You just gotta kind of chuck your ego out the door, and uh, and do what the what, what is required for balance. Um, but uh, but of course, when you're playing in an orchestra, there's a little more. Um, you know, you're up on stage and and you have your moments of being in the spotlight, and uh, and those are really fun too. Yeah. So uh, if you had, uh, I mean, it's kind of like having to choose between you know your kids or your cats. Uh, <laughs> in terms of like. What what is your favorite? I mean, if if you were put in a situation where you could only choose to play either with uh, an orchestra or with an, an opera company, which which would you want to gravitate towards? If I had to choose one, I probably would go for orchestra. One of the reasons is there's more uh, more variety. You know, in in Santa Fe, and as and I would guess in most opera companies, you have a pretty extended rehearsal process. Five rehearsals maybe plus two dress rehearsals or maybe more and then you have a run of you know x number of of performances and santa fe can be anywhere from five or six up to like 12 or 13 performances um and there's there's some beauty in that you know you you really really get to know the music you start singing it on your own you kind of memorize the opera uh in a way but you know in an orchestra you're playing something new every week and there's a lot of repetition, of course. I mean, there's the, the old war horses that we're going to see every year, but there's a reason that they're around for a long time. They're masterpieces. They're amazing, amazing emotional pieces of music. But usually there's, you know, some cool overture, something new, a commission, new soloist, something that, like, really brings your um, bring, brings something new and, and fresh and exciting. Yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, it, you know, it, like I said, you know, it's, it's hard to make that call because, you know, I think at the end of the day, we just love playing trumpet and how, how we do it is less important than the fact that we are doing it and, and all kind of music speaks to us in different ways. So um, it's great that you have that opportunity to express yourself in so many different ways. And um, yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the work that you, that you and your wife do in terms of the dash duo. Sure. Sure. So uh, we started, you know, we, we uh, let's see, we got together in 2008 and we got married in 2013. And probably around that time, we started doing some performances together as a duo, um, just looking for opportunities. Um, but the schedule in Naples, was, you know, got pretty busy and it just got hard to uh, to do other things outside of the outside of the orchestra. So we kind of tabled it for a couple of years. But since I um, took this job at the uh, North Carolina School of the Arts, We've been uh, kind of re- revitalizing the duo, and uh, we've been uh, performing anywhere from five to ten performances a year. 
everything from uh, playing with community orchestras to uh, playing with organ. We did some um, uh, commissions. Uh, we did a, a commission for uh, two trumpets and organ by James Stevenson. It's called Awakenings. And we just uh, have done a new commission by a young composer named Tyson Davis, and that's going to be two trumpets and string orchestra. And um, I hope I'm not letting the bag cat out of the bag here, but Mary's going to do a, a orchestra uh, recording uh, next year. And uh, this piece, the Two Trumpets and String Orchestra uh, by Tyson Davis, is going to be one of the pieces that we're going to record. We're also going to premiere it with a, a group that I play with here in North Carolina called the Chamber Orchestra of the Triangle. Okay. So you got all kinds of good stuff going on with that. So the this... this uh brings us to the conversation because you know i i had your wife mary uh on uh, a month or so ago i absolutely love talking to her she was so much fun um and she said so many wonderful things about you but i want to get the truth now so, <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah you know, we, we talked a little bit about uh you know being in a two trumpet household <laughs> and um you know i know people who uh, you know, the, their spouse uh, is in a related field or, you know, sometimes in, in the same field. Um, and for some people that works out really, really well. And some people it, it just, you know, it's, it's contentious, but it sounds like for you too, that you, you have this really wonderful dynamic where uh, you have your individual careers uh, as performers and as, and as educators, but you're also able to come together and, and do something as a collaborative effort. So, um, with, when, when you're performing with your wife, uh, there has to be a level of, of, uh, connection and communication that comes out in your music that is not like just, you know, playing with with your section mate that, that there, there's something so much deeper so have have you experienced that i mean are you cognizant of of that and 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 how does it how does it manifest and 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 you know kind of take us through, through some of the the concepts and feelings you have with that wow uh that's that's really interesting yeah absolutely i mean you know we we love one another we've been married for a long time and uh the music is I mean, music is connection, right? Like you, you play music with other people and you connect to them. And so we're connected in, in, in our lives and our personal lives. Uh, and so the, the music just like becomes even stronger, I think, for that reason. Uh, also, because I live with Mary, uh, uh, even though, you know, she's traveling a lot. I travel a fair amount. And so like we're uh, we sometimes are in the same place and sometimes not. But when we're in the same place, like we practice together and uh, we work on the material and, and it becomes, it's like a slow growth. It kind of changes, your, your approach to the music changes over time, over years. And uh, some, of the, some of the pieces um, that we, for example, this piece Awakenings by James Stevenson that we commissioned uh, probably six, seven years ago, we're performing in September um, with a new organist named Felix Hell. And uh, so... Our approach is, is it's going to be different this time. You know, we have so many other musical experiences. We're growing individually. We're growing as a as a team, and uh, so it's it's always fun to uh, just kind of see like what directions we want to take things in now. Yeah, well, yeah. It's I, I um in in my years when I was studying martial arts very seriously, uh, I had um, two of my my biggest mentors were. Uh, a couple and they they had known each other since they were kids um and they were at that point they had been married i think 50 plus years 
uh, and uh, I was having some relationship uh, issues and, and they were both giving me marital advice and they were giving it to me uh, separately. So I, I talked to, to one and then I talked to the other. Hmm. And it was really funny that they both gave me the same advice. Wow. And their advice was, um, uh, one, one, of the, one of my teachers, her, her name was Madam Wong and, and her husband's name was Dr. Wu. And, and Madam Wong said, the secret to a long marriage is uh, that my husband always makes me feel like I'm right. <laughs> and I always try to make him feel like he's right. And he told me the same thing. And then they both ended with the same statement. The truth of the matter is, we all know that I'm always right. So, <laughs> That's amazing. so, so the question is, um, who's always right? <laughs> is it you or is it Mary? I, I would say that Mary's always right. Okay. <laughs> You're a smart man. She's going to listen to this. But, you know, I know what's up. Um, yeah. But, you know, another part of this, uh, of this thing is that we support each other. We have kind of different areas that, that are our real strengths. And so uh, she'll ask me for advice and I'll ask her for advice. And sometimes we kind of have to force one another, like, hey, I, I need your help. Come in here. You know, and there's some yeah. reluctance there because we're doing other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we both love music so much and we love the trumpet and we're ambitious. And so it all ties together. You know, I, I have people frequently who say to me, like, how, how can you possibly live with another musician, let alone another trumpet player? But, you know, it fits perfectly. It's, it's, it's one of the main reasons why we're together. Yeah. Uh, what's the biggest impact do you think she's had on you in terms of your development as a player? Patience. Patience. By far. I am incredibly impatient. I, I'm determined and I work hard, but I also tend to try to jump from A to Z. And Mary is hyper methodical and mm -hmm. uh, very step by step, takes things slowly, does not skip any steps. And um, so even now, you know, I, I, I will want to push ahead and uh, she'll remind me to take things slow, do it right or don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. you know, so patience. And, and what did you bring to the table for her? Uh, probably, um, probably a lot of uh, hyper attention to detail in terms of um, like clarity in the middle register, um, uh, time, some, some ideas about phrasing sometimes, you know, things like that yeah well yeah you know you're saying you know being a being a team i think whether it's it's in a marriage or in a business or in a, in a band um you know it's that ability to work together and to understand that we while we have that overlap that we do each have our own individual strengths and conversely our weaknesses and it's it's how we can work together for the common good and um that requires a, a checking of the ego every once in a while and, and being willing to to be a part of some to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You have to give up sometimes, uh, you know, that that desire to always do it your way or, or to be right all the time. So for sure. Uh, and also the, the, the willingness to um, listen to somebody's opinion and really take it to heart, uh, especially when it's somebody who is an excellent musician like Mary. Um, it's tempting to think like like that, that was good enough right like and then you hear that her opinion was like no it should be better and it hurts your ego a little bit but you got to be humble you got to like take that next step 
and same thing, of course, when you're when you're studying with with anybody, or you play as an adult. Sometimes you know you play for a different player, and you'll get a, uh, some feedback that maybe doesn't jive with what your perception was originally. Um, you just got to be open to that criticism, and sometimes it sometimes it's not valid, honestly. But like, um, especially when you're young, just yeah. trust trust the people that are giving you advice. You know, they're not they're not bullshitting you. Like they're really trying to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually was. Uh just writing about that today that you know there's there's a lot of information that's out there there's also a lot of disinformation mm-hmm. and you know the the onus does lie on you know it's it's the uh buyer beware sort of thing you know um and sometimes you just do have to you have to take things you have to take them at face value you have to look at them you have to try them you have to consider them uh, but then ultimately you have to make a decision of whether it works for you or not. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, we either dismiss things because they don't fit with our view. You know, they're not what we want to hear. Um, and then sometimes uh, we accept things that maybe aren't accurate or aren't good information simply because they're coming from a, a source that we uh, for for various reasons, uh, have put some weight or gravity towards you know uh, a respected teacher or expert in in something, and you know nobody's got all the answers. But I think that that we have to, you know, as people who are striving to make improvement, you have to get as much information as you can from as many different sources, and then just sort through it and figure out what works for you. Um, so I mean that's that's my personal opinion. I mean how do you how do you feel on that? Absolutely. I, 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 I think if I really listed all of the teachers that I've had over the years, it probably would be a couple dozen. I mean, it's a lot of people. And uh, not to mention all the uh, online sources, you know, just kind of scrolling through YouTube and like, let's listen to somebody's warm up or let's listen to this masterclass and just see what somebody has to say. Um, and uh, I, I think that there's a, there's a kind of time scale to it. You know, when you're starting your, when you're in high school, you're starting your undergraduate degree or something like that, like, you, you got to trust the people that are influencing you heavily, your major teacher. Trust them, believe it, work hard. Of course, seek other sources. It takes years, really years. Like, probably, I would say, like, between ages 18 and, you know, your mid-20s is that kind of information gathering phase. And then, like, eventually in your sort of early mid-20s, you start, like, sorting through, like, okay... I really want to do it this way. This way works. This other way like doesn't work so great for me. And often there's a weird thing that happens as, as people progress their careers. At least this has been my experience. Something that I discarded years ago, you know, 10 years ago. I can look back now and I say, like, okay, first of all, I know why this teacher wanted me to do it this way. Second of all, I know why it failed <laughs> at that time. And third of all, now I can see the value. So like let's let's go back. Let's try this thing again. Let's see if we can figure out, you know, what this what this person was trying to help me with. Yeah. Well, I've always thought that um like in terms of learning uh, and applying new concepts that it's often like putting together a big jigsaw puzzle. And sometimes there's a piece that you know, you get over here and it's a great nugget of information but you just don't have the connecting pieces for it yet. Right. And then all of a sudden you get those connectors and then 
boom, you know, everything starts to, to really blossom. But, you know, you just at the point that someone told you something, you just you weren't ready for it yet. But it's still in there and it, it's still marinating in there. Yeah. Um, so I, I love what you said about, you know, that that you know, going back and revisiting it. Um, and I think that sometimes that is it's kind of like mouthpieces, you know, it's like every trumpet player's got a got a shoebox full of mouthpieces. <laughs> you know, it's like we get these these bits of information and, and we just kind of throw them into a, a, a box and we never never touch them again. I think sometimes it is it would be beneficial for us to revisit you know, all of the things that, that we've been taught over the years and, you know, look at them under the, the light of, of our new experiences and, you know, how, how we've grown as people, how we've, you know, physically matured or, or, you know, as our physical states decline as we get a little older, I'm not going to talk about that too much since I just turned 60. Um, But, uh, you know, as we go through all these changes, then our concepts need to change to go along with it. So I think uh, reevaluating is a great thing. So uh, as part of that, I think it's it's really important to to keep track somehow. You know, I've been a kind of obsessive note taker from from the beginning. And um, my current method is uh, this uh, spreadsheet that Tom Hooten uh, introduced to me. And so I keep a, I do a weekly spreadsheet. I list all the stuff that I want to work on in the week and the days over the top, and I just make check marks. At the bottom, I take some notes. I keep track of how much time I'm playing every day. Um, so it's very, very methodical. Um, it used to be much more kind of longhand. This is what I worked on today. This is how much I did. Um, but I have I've just, just notebooks and notebooks and notebooks. And the other thing is it's so easy to record lessons, especially now. But uh, back in the early 2000s when I was in grad school, uh, you know, I recorded everything on mini disc, And I have those. And I actually went back probably five, six years ago. And, and uh, my teacher at that time was Bob Sullivan. Um, and I listened to all of the mini discs. It took me like a year or something, a year and a half, you know, because I kind of gradually went through them. Um, but I listened to everything and it was fascinating. Uh, and now if I play for somebody, which I still do uh, pretty frequently, most recently was Matt Ernst, uh, the Milwaukee Symphony is the person I've been playing for. And um, I recorded all of those lessons, every single one. And so in another 10 years, if I feel like I'm searching for more information and trying to sort things out, like I, I'm going to have that information. I can go back and listen again. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that especially with the, you know, the way that technology has changed, it's really made it a lot easier for us to be able to do that and to, to access that information and to collate it. And, and, um, you know, I try to balance myself without being too, uh, too organized and too free flowing. You know, it's like trying to find that perfect balance, you know, because sometimes we can get uh, stuck in either one of those, but I think having that level of organization uh, and clarity on what you're trying to do, I think that that's key to making great improvement. You know, you you because if you're not getting where you want to be, but you you can't quantify the steps you've taken, then how do you know whether you know you're you're doing? Is it that you're doing the wrong thing, or you're just not doing enough of the right thing? Right. It's so hard to identify. It's one of those things about like how you progress, how you keep track of your progress, also. Having clear goals where you're, um, I know you do a lot of professional goal setting work, which is amazing. So please, please give me your opinions. But, um, you know, I love that idea of the SMART goals. Uh, yeah. So specific, measurable, uh, what does the A stand for again? Uh, sometimes they say actionable. Sometimes they, uh, that's usually the, the, the big one. Right. 
and realistic and time-based. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that the thing that people tend to fail on is specific and time-based. Yeah. Usually people make some kind of vague statement, uh, but they have no, there's no deadlines and there's no, um, there's no consequences and, and it's not specific enough. And so they kind of, it's more like a hope. Mm-hmm. You know? So I, I, with my students and through Apex also, uh, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, uh, we make sure everybody sets really clear goals that are reasonable length of time, usually about a month, um, and then have some kind of way to track, like, are you progressing towards it or not? Um, and there's a serious element of psychology in, in the tracking of it, because if you, if you are able to say, okay, my goal is to, is to get here, but right now I can go, this is where I can consistently do the, this thing, then that's a confidence builder. Like, okay, I'm halfway there. Like, I can do this pretty consistently. This one's not so consistent. This isn't happening yet. But it's just a matter of time. That means you're on the right track, as you were saying. But if you don't know, if you're not keeping track, then you're just guessing. And then yeah. you're probably trying to hit this goal over and over and over and failing most of the time. And that's just a confidence crusher. Yeah. Well, I think that's the specific part is a big one. And that's, uh, you know, you're, you, you maybe let the cat out of the bag about uh, your wife's new project. Uh, I'll let the cat out of the bag about my new project. I'm actually writing a new book. And um, the premise of the book is, or at least the working title right now, I better trademark it before I release this episode. Uh, it's uh, yeah, to, uh, to get a better answer, ask a better question. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of, of the problem is that uh, when it comes to setting goals, a lot of times we're in, the clarity of the goal is not just the clarity of, you know, I want to get better. I mean, which is, you know, that that's that's such an abstract concept, but becoming so specific uh, in what the definition of better means. So, um, you know, asking yourself those better questions of, you know, well, well, what what is it that I want to sound like? What is it that I feel I'm lacking? Uh, what would be the, if I could do A, B, and C, would that mean that I would feel successful in the, in the accomplishment of my, my goal? So uh, being able to ask those questions to ourselves, and then that allows us when we're uh, studying with someone to be able to sit down with a, a teacher and, and say, uh, you know, to saying, you know, I need help with my articulation to be able to say, uh, I have this specific problem with, you know, with my attacks at this dynamic level on these specific notes at these specific tempos. What can, you know, what can I do or what should I do to address this issue? So by getting those finer and more clear questions formulated in our head, uh, then we're able to get those answers, uh, you know, so no one, the person that, you, that you're asking a question to isn't guessing what the answer is going to be, you know, so uh, I think that, that those are the, the things that um, a lot of times even the, and from the educational standpoint, um, that we don't see a lot of teachers giving students the, the tools to ask the better questions. You know, it, it's just basically just giving these kind of blanket statements and these blanket answers instead of taking them through a discovery process uh, mm-hmm. of helping them to, to identify what it is that they actually are looking for. Absolutely. And, and that and that is so much more motivating, I think, from their perspective to find things that they want to develop and to bring it to 
the person that's a mentor uh, rather than the other way around. I mean, of course, it has to go the other way around, too, because uh, I think a lot of the process of teaching somebody or, or sharing information is um, all about um, just awareness and perception. And uh, frequently, because usually the mentee is younger uh, and has had less experience, they're just not as aware of different techniques or different styles of music or different sound concepts or psychological concepts or whatever you know there's there, there's a whole world that you just you just learn by progressing through life and constantly searching and yeah. um yeah yeah so i mean and and speaking of which is kind of a good transition to talk about apex sure. um but uh the the thing that that really got me looking into that more i mean when i, I saw uh, i saw a few ads on on instagram and it's like oh okay yeah this this this, this looks like interesting i mean at least it, it was cool graphics and stuff like that it's like oh okay at least professional but as i started to look more to it and that's kind of what led me to uh get mary on the show and then which has led to you being on the show so now we just had to get your other partner on this um uh, and duke uh but wait hold on there he is <laughs> it's a duke sighting it's official okay. <laughs> um but i as I started to read more about what the mission of Apex was and the way that things are set up and, and the, the, just the, the basic philosophy of it, um, it's taking the old paradigm of, of a masterclass or a symposium and giving it a little more uh, of a, how do I say this? It, it gives it more, input from the direction from the the participant than just okay we're just going to throw this information out at you so like what you're saying about helping people with the goal setting and the uh mm -hmm. some like the assignments that you give people it seems to be um a very challenging yet very nurturing environment uh so what what really motivated you to to make this uh make this format for for people to be able to take a part on well first of all I'm, I'm really glad that that came across because i think you're right on uh the the vibe of community and mutual support and challenging each other in a positive way is exactly what we're going for and um i've just i've just been thrilled with the with the um, various apex groups that we've had we've done uh, let's see three so far last fall last spring and over the summer and we also did a kind of uh, prototype called, which we called dash duo seminar that was last summer um, when the uh, pandemic first started and our goal was always to to figure out how to how to help people and how to create a, a community and and we've just been like blown away by the impact that the feedback that we've gotten that they that, uh, of the impact on these students and there's just been an incredible amount of enthusiasm and uh, positivity. And so we're, we're thrilled to be able to continue it. Um, so the, we're actually starting another one on September 11th. And uh, uh, so we have about another week or so to, uh, to organize everything and uh, get everything going. We have an incredible um, guest artist roster this, uh, this time around. We always have amazing, amazing people. But this year we have uh, Doc Severinsen, Otto Sauter, Lucien Renan-Den Vary, Marie Speziali. Taga Larson from the Chicago Symphony, Lori Schiff, who is uh, an Alexander Technique uh, teacher, Karen Donnelly, uh, Rashawn Ross, 
And of course, Mary, me, and Dr. Nathan Warner is, uh, is our third partner. So that's our, that's our kind of artist roster. And we always do a, kind of a mix of fundamentals and master classes. Um, and this year, we're, um, as you said, we're trying to get more input from the students. So we're having students lead a portion of the fundamentals class. And we're also um, doing like breakout rooms uh, pretty frequently where students will be able to play whatever it is they're working on three, five minutes uh, in groups of three or four people. So that's our, that's our goal is to create more connections, more enthusiasm, and more, um, more positivity. And so far, it's been working really well. Uh, it started because we, you know, we, the Santa Fe Opera was canceled. All of Mary's gigs were canceled, of course, uh, just like with the rest of us. And so we were looking for ways to share, ways to connect. You know, we were isolating in our home and, uh, you know, just looking for opportunities. And so this is, uh, this is the outgrowth of that. Yeah. So is there any uh, thought about the, in the future, making this a, a hybrid event, like a live and virtual Yes, we are exploring um, uh, in-person options for next summer. So we're talking about locations, uh, lengths of, of the seminar and so forth. Um, but we're, we're planning on making this a fully live event. I don't, I don't know if the hybrid model, that's a possibility for sure. We'll have to try to discuss how that might work. Yeah. I, I think that of, of all of the, the things that have come out of the, the COVID well, we're still not out of it, but <laughs> that uh, we've we've learned to date. Um, to me, I think one of the most important things is the uh, how technology can be our friend, and particularly for for the things that that we do in terms of uh, education. That just even like this this uh, podcast, which was originally designed to be a live. You know, you and me sitting across the table from each other having a conversation. Uh, it's turned into you and I sitting across the states uh, having a conversation with each other. Uh, and while I do miss the the energy that you get from being, you know, fit in physical proximity with someone, um, the fact that now I can talk to someone in Australia or Ireland or Japan. Yeah, I'm not limited to who can I, who can, who's coming through town or who is close enough for me to drive to see. Absolutely. You know? That's been one of the most incredible things about this. I mean, even for this coming seminar, Lucien's coming from France, Otto, I, be, I believe is in Germany. Um, you know, everybody else is in the United States. Uh, actually, Karen is, is Canadian, um, but all over the United States. You know, Rashawn's going to be on tour somewhere with the Dave Matthews Band, who knows where, he, where he'll be. Um, I fully agree. I mean, it's been an un unbelievable opportunity and uh, really, you know, an incredible learning experience for me and Mary and Nathan also uh, to, to not just learn from these amazing guest artists, but to hear from um, the participants, the, the students about what they're working on and how they're progressing and the things that seem to come naturally to them, the things that are a little more challenging. Uh, it's been amazing. Yeah. Well, let, you know, since we were earlier talking about goals, um, if you don't mind what, sharing, what are your goals in relation to, to Apex? Where do you want to see it uh, be in the next three to five years? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wow. Uh, to be honest, we, I have not thought that far ahead. You know, we're, we're thinking spread cheek for this. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I'm thinking the next three months right now, you know, which, which is our fall, fall season. And, um, and then we're, we're, as I said, starting to explore locations for, uh, for the summer. Um, but we, we want this thing to continue. You know, we think that it has a lot of, first of all, we've, we've interacted with, um, several dozen uh, I, I don't know we haven't I haven't counted the number of participants yet but it's I would guess it's somewhere around 100 and um, you know all of these people we have formed strong connections with uh, and so we want to see them in person uh, a few of them actually wound up coming to, to uh, UNC School of the Arts uh, which has been uh, been amazing to meet these people in person some have gone to Shenandoah uh, Conservatory where Mary teaches and it's very interesting when you when you've interacted with somebody um, online many times and then you see them in person. It's not so different. It's yeah. it's it's a lot closer than maybe you think it would be. Um, and so uh, you really feel like you know somebody. So you know the online format, as you were alluding to, it, it. I think we were scared of it, you know, before the pandemic, and it just seemed like like that was off the table. And now that we've been forced to do it for a year and a half. It actually kind of works, you know. It's not it's not as good as being in person. I agree with that, but there are advantages, as you said, about reaching out to all these other people in various parts of the world, um, and it's super convenient. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, in terms of, I mean, obviously, technology, uh, you know, streaming things like that certainly make things a lot better. I mean, I remember doing Skype lessons with people, ooh, you know, ten years ago, something like that, fifteen years ago. Uh, but you know, the quality was just so horrific, you know, the, you know, there's just too much lag time. Um, but now that, you know, even your, your cell phone, uh, is able to shoot in 4k and, you know, you, you can get decent, decent video. Uh, the hardest part is the audio. Yeah. You know, because if the audio interface isn't, uh, isn't high quality, you know, in, uh, you're not going to get a good representation of the sound. And, and of course, being, you know, a music-based uh, event, then I think that that's the one area where there's a, there, where there's a limitation of uh, mm-hmm. you can't get a true representation of the sound if, if they're not, if there's not a good recording and, and, uh, and display, not display, but the playback uh, option that that's available. But other than that, I mean, you know, in terms of dissemination of information, the forming of connections, you know, there, there is no limit at this point. So, you know, and, and I agree with what, what you're saying about the audio. It is challenging and it's not as good as hearing somebody live. Um, but there's a lot that you can hear, you know, and you're not going to really hear the sound quality. I agree. Um, uh, but you can hear, you can kind of, you can get an idea of what's really going on. And the, there are many other aspects of the, of the music that you can, um, you can evaluate and interact with the person. Um, and it, it depends to a great extent on how much they have invested in audio equipment um, and the interface and uh, if they've tested it out. So through Apex, we, we make sure that, it, you know, we, we test it out uh, 
uh, before they try to play for a master class, and we make sure that the levels are right and that there's not the uh, you know the the automatically correcting the volume, which makes makes it shoot up and down. Uh, right. So that's that's part of what we do. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, it, it's. I think it's the the world needs the trumpet world needs more people who are willing to um, try something different. You know, we, we've had the same formula for so long of, you know, you, you know, you go to this hotel for a week and you, you know, wander through the exhibit halls and you, you know, cram into the, and, and that's, that's great. I mean, I, I love those things and I miss those things, but you know, it, you could pretty much count, you know, on things being very predictable and, and very much the same and the approach being very the same. But uh, I, I feel that Apex has, has taken the best from that old model, but is adding uh, a more personality driven uh, layer to that, you know, the as opposed to, you know, once you get to, I guess sometimes a, a business gets so big or an organization gets so big, that it becomes about sustaining the organization and not about the individual needs of the membership. Uh And, you know, I think with apex, you guys are, especially at this stage, you're, it it is such a, I don't, I'm not saying small in a negative way, but you know, it's a small enough community that there is that personal connection between uh, you know, the founders and the students. And so, so that, that creates a completely different, experience because uh, each person is heard each person uh, has that feeling that uh, something was presented directly to them that they have that personal takeaway and uh, sometimes I feel like that's missing in the bigger events right you know it's, it's very similar to a university studio uh, where the connection between the, the students and the teacher is very 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 close um, and uh, you know a big part of this is Mary and I have our marriage and Nathan has been a, a friend of mine for 20 years you know so we we have a personal connection and I think that that connection uh, kind of carries over to everybody who's a part of this yeah. now that's great so uh, with your your uh, your gig uh, in North Carolina um, how long have you been in posi- in your uh, teaching position there uh, this is wait a second <laughs> I gotta think about this I started in 2017 so what is that so, this is five fifth year start of the fifth year mm-hmm. so was was the educational route something that you uh you know kind of always had in in your game plan or was it something that just kind of a, a natural evolution uh well the story is kind of funny you know i i taught for years i started teaching when i was um, a sophomore in college and uh i just I just liked it. I just liked working with students, and I think I was actually kind of bad at it at first because I, I approached things the way that I thought about things, which was kind of theoretical and analytical, and, you know, a kid just needs to hear you play and copy it, you know, and um, I learned that, you know, over time, just, just simplify, make it really clear, demonstrate a lot. Um, so I taught middle school and high school level kids uh, really right up until I, I came here to the university level. Um, and I found that kind of being in the trenches, you know, for all those years and figuring out what people naturally do well, you know, it's just, just the range all over the place, you know, anything you can dream of. Uh, some people are really just naturally gifted in some ways and find other things challenging. 
um, and, and discovering that and figuring out how to help people um, over the years was something I became really passionate about. Um, and uh, I'd been in Naples for nine years, and uh, so Mary and I were talking, and she um, found, uh, found out about the opening um, up here and encouraged me to apply, and uh, so that's, that's how I wound up here. Um, and uh, at first I was kind of scared because I, I'd left, I had no playing obligations. You know, I was just coming up here, and maybe we had a couple Dash Duo uh, recitals. I, I can't remember for that first year. Uh, but pretty quickly, things things started to come around. I started playing with the Charlotte Symphony, and um, uh, Ashley Hall uh, contacted me uh, about playing with a, a couple other groups, North Carolina Brass Band, uh, where I play principal cornet, and the Chamber Orchestra of the Triangle, where I play principal trumpet. And um, this coming year, um, I want a one-year position with the North Carolina Symphony. So I'm going to be doing both both jobs at once, uh, driving back and forth to Raleigh. Okay. Well. That a lot of fun driving there. <laughs> she says, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, being a road warrior. Uh, but I mean, in terms of, of like um, working on the university level, yeah, I've had I've had this conversation with a, a number of my guests, and, and maybe it's because it's just a a passion point for me that the the importance of be of having a good teacher of having a good mentor um it's critical you know it, it is absolutely critical if we want to see uh the art of trumpet improve and i think that ultimately should be you know we not only that we want we want people to continue to play but we want people to improve we want the 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 uh the end result to be better so so, but sometimes we, we get so caught up in teaching the traditional methods and we don't think about how changes that have occurred uh, both uh, socially and, and in terms of technology and things like that, demands, uh, how that has to affect what we teach and how we teach it. So um, as, a, as a, uh, a teacher now in that higher education uh, position where I'm sure you have that balance. You have a, a mix of people who are uh, performance majors and education majors and things like that. Um, what's what are the things that, that you feel you need to be able to present and you know hopefully have the students take away that would make you feel like okay, well I've done my job. I've done uh, yeah I, I've accomplished what I've set out to do. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, UNCSA only has performance majors. So uh, we don't have an education degree. So this year I have a number of graduate students and a couple high school students, actually. So there's a little bit of a division between the high school and the, and the older students. The high school students, for the most part, kind of have their own ensembles, um, but they have master class all together. And so I might give different assignments, but the high school students will have a chance to play. Um, but to, to answer your question, um, I think part of it comes from the student. So the first thing that I did this year is I asked the students to write their bio set five years in the future. Um, so what, what, in other words, like make write down your dreams. You know, where where do you want to go? And uh, I was really fascinated to um, have them all read them out loud in our last studio class uh, because some some people dream of playing in an orchestra. Some people. I uh, want to go into the professional uh, education route, teaching at the university level. Some people want to play commercial music. Um, some people kind of want to compose and do their own thing. 
And so, you know, I think my job is to help encourage that person and help them play the trumpet as well as they can so that whatever it is that they want to do next, they're capable of doing. So uh, part of that also is evaluating, helping actually have them self-evaluate where they are in a number of different um, technique levels, uh, different types of techniques, different uh, types of repertoire, and different sort of approaches to practicing and performing and making music so that we can use that template and figure out, you know, what's, what's working, where do we need to go from here? That's great. Um, yeah, and I, I love what you, what you're doing with, uh, giving them that opportunity to do that self-evaluation, you know, because I think so many, uh, so many people go through life, uh, only being evaluated by others, hmm. you know, and especially as, you know, as, as a, as a musician, you know, you, you are being evaluated by, you know, your teacher, you're being evaluated by your audience, you're being that. And it's that mindful self-evaluation, not the, not the self-evaluation that, that so many of us give ourselves, which is God, I suck. Why am I doing this? <laughs> but you know, that, that, you know, okay, well, here are my strengths, here are my weaknesses, uh, you know, and, and now I'm in, op- I'm, I, I'm clear on what I've got to work with and what I need to work on. So now I'm in a position where I can, I can actually, like I was saying earlier, right. Being able to ask that better question of, of, you know, being identified what's, what's going on. And I think that uh, like from my own perspective, I look back on my music education. uh, You know, when I was, when I was in in the school of music uh, at Ohio state, that if my professors had given me that, uh, opportunity, you know, to really be more involved in my process other than here's your lesson, go work on it, come back next week. But to make it a collaborative effort that I probably would have a much, I would have had, I know it had a much different result, but it also have a, um, a better feeling about that process. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I really commend you for, for doing that, uh, which actually brings up a good question that I want to ask you, which is, um, what do you feel that, you know, is your unique contribution or what would you like your unique contribution to the, the world of, of music education to be? Wow. Um, I think it's all about personal connection. You know, I think that the the mo- I think much more important than any information that I have to share is having the student know that I really care, that I want that person to succeed, and that I'm invested uh, emotionally. And um, I think that that I think that that really matters. That feeling of support, you know, is is our emotions are fragile. Our egos are fragile. You know, uh, some more than others, I guess, but. Uh, all of us have self-doubts and uh, and fears, and having somebody who's willing to say, "I'm I'm with you. I care. I'm trying. I'm going to help. I'm going to help you. I'm going to do everything I can to help you." I think that's the most important thing. And secondary is the um, is is the content that I um, that I can share through my own efforts to improve my playing and through my uh, sort of wide-ranging efforts to uh, to educate myself. Um, I think that that, I mean, that speaks volumes and, and it ties, I can see where that 
is such a critical part of uh, what you guys are doing with Apex. You know, it's it's that that personal level of connection and um, you know the uh, for lack of a better word, but it's one of my favorite words to use anyway. Uh, it, it's a more holistic approach to teaching. You know, mm-hmm. it, it you, you can't just simply address the the technical issue or the mechanical issue. There there are other factors that go in, and, and particularly the emotional issues. Um, you know, I, I sometimes equate like, uh, well, it, I guess it, it it's kind of standard with with all levels of education. Um, you know, with and particularly we see it in the arts and we see it in sports. Uh, you know, you have the the teachers or the coaches who are the drill sergeants. You know, whether it be like the the, the stereotypical Russian ballet teachers, or you know the you know the the people that you know when you make a mistake you get smacked you know smacked on the hand or you know things like that uh, or ridiculed in some cases. Um, and then you have uh, the more uh, uh, you know. Uh, people people who are more concerned with uh creating an environment where a student feels safe to experiment to uh to make mistakes because i mean ultimately that's that's how we learn we learn through our mistakes and i think when we we become afraid of making mistakes is when we actually stifle our creativity Mm -hmm. so um i think that 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 shift that we we see in some uh, some great educators of, you know, addressing the whole person and not just the, you know, the, the performance that becomes critical in not just developing a good artist, but just a good person, you know, mm-hmm. and it makes for a little bit better. So. I yeah. really, and part I of that also is uh, having those tough conversations of, um, you know, why isn't the etude ready this week? Are you practicing enough? Why, you know, what, what has held you back? Did you, did you have conflicts with, uh, with the ensembles or, or practice time, when are you practicing? You know, did you schedule it? And helping them figure out, like, why was this, not just, like, berating them, like, this isn't good enough, but, like, what, you know, what happened? Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, it's the, it's the honest conversations. Um, you know, in, in my hang with Alan Vizzuti, who, you know, Alan is, you know, arguably one of the, the finest trumpet players of our time, mm-hmm. uh, and Alan's such a such a cool, easygoing guy, but he said, you know, hey, yeah, I can I can have those tough conversations too. I can I can tell somebody, you know, hey, I really don't think that that this is a good fit for you. I, you know, and it's just being honest and realistic with with people, and and being able to say, you know, well, why isn't Dre too Brady? Well, you know, if if you're choosing to do, you know, to go hang out with your friends, you're choosing to play Netflix, you know, play games or watch Netflix, then maybe you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't consider being a musician right now, you mm-hmm. know, that, that this isn't, this isn't a priority to you. Mm-hmm. And not in a way of like, you know, you suck, you're, a, you know, that, that sort of thing, but just that realistic talk that if, if this isn't working for you, then you're wasting your time. Right. And, you know, and it's just that, that honesty uh, and constructive honesty that comes from, from that place of truth as opposed to, you know, that the emotional beratings that sometimes happen, you know, that we, we've all, we've all had that teacher, you know, so, um, anyway, uh, I do want to get to, uh, before we go, I, I want to get to a few segments. We have a, a few segments to get to. Uh, 
And uh, the first one um, is brought to us by uh, my good friend, Michael Barkley, uh, Barkley Microphones. Uh, and we call this Sound Off. And uh, I want to talk to you about your approach to uh, developing the right sound for the job. Uh, hmm. So with your your work, your professional work, your personal work, uh, you are certainly called upon to uh, to have a few different sounds uh, based on you know, whether you're doing the the duo or doing the orchestra or, or the uh, the opera, uh, but also you know you're working with students who maybe want to go like you said go into commercial work or to go into orchestral work. Um, how do you how do you address concepts of sounds and and what are the the things that you have as kind of your go-to for you know if if you if you're looking to develop your sound these are the things that you should consider doing yeah i would say probably the first and last is listening uh just finding one or maybe two people that you're sort of obsessed with that person's sound and all you want in life is to sound like that person um uh, i certainly did that uh and I think that's where it all comes from. I mean, music is a language and uh, trying to describe, I found that often people try to describe sounds and the words that they, they'll use one word, like I'll use a word like bright, you know, and you use a word like bright and we have a totally different understanding of what that word means. Right. The, the, the language just doesn't work that well. You know, you can try, but like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be heard and, and maybe shown. You know, so I think I think that's where it comes from. Okay. Yeah. So, like when you're working with your students uh, at the school, uh, do you have like specific uh, assignments or exercises that, that you'll take people through to help them to to kind of codify their sounds? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I would say the the first thing that I always have students do is when they're playing any new piece solo piece or ensemble piece or uh, you know jazz combo jazz ensemble whatever is uh, is again listening and ideally really finding like three or four or five different recordings and and identifying what you like or don't like about each one and kind of picking one that you're sort of obsessed with and just listening obsessively until it until it becomes second nature to so you just you memorize that sound that sound is in your mind all the time um, so I would start there I also use a number of tools to help people um, recognize when there are areas to be improved uh, so for example um, I, I love TE Tuner uh, TE Tuner has a, a number of different functions which are fantastic uh, I have students play with drones all the time uh, because uh, I found in my own playing and, and for other people as well if you don't play with drones pretty frequently your sense of intonation can drift so usually sharp for us as trumpet players but not always and um, no matter what, you just got to keep refining and refining and refining it. So drones are really good. Tuners are okay also, but I think drones are superior for pitch um, uh, valuation and, and uh, like refining your sense of pitch. I also uh, got a, uh, some great tips from Mark Anyway from the San Francisco Symphony. He came and gave a class at UNCSA several years ago, and he introduced a, an app that he likes called Road Rec. And Road Rec has a function where you can record yourself and listen back at half speed. Uh, now, RoadRack does not offer that function anymore, but you can do the same thing on TE Tuner. 
And what, what I found is that there is almost always something to be improved that the student just didn't hear before. You know, I, I hear it because, like, I've made those mistakes already. <laughs> so I could, like, perceive that, you know, the triple tongue is, like, not even or, or whatever the issue is. But, like, they don't hear it yet. But if you, if you record them and actually show them and they, and they listen back at half speed, they'll hear it right away. Um, another trick, another level of obsessiveness is to uh, put a metronome on and then, and then uh, do the uh, half-speed listening. And usually that adds just another element of, uh, uh, of recognizing possible time issues. So I think the technology, as you were saying, can be really helpful. The, the, uh, when you were talking about using the metronome uh, and, and finding time issues, do you, you think that, that there's a correlation between the time and, and the sound? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all part of, you know, if you, this like umbrella of sound, it, I think it includes uh, time and articulation and, and volume for sure and intonation. You know, it all, it's all kind of together, you know, so, but, but it's, I find that it can be a sort of um, intuitive thing that you, you think about sound, you kind of like dream of the sound, usually through listening or your own creativity. Um, but those other aspects of what you sound like, like that's a little easier to be objective and to actually like point to like, okay, this is what's really happening here uh, and let's, let's fix this thing. And that's part of, that's just part of the music just like anything else is. Okay, cool. Awesome. Some great, great tips. I think I have TE Tuner. I, I never explored any of those. Uh, I mean, I just basically... Oh, check it out. I mean, there are other weird things. There's an analysis function where... Um, you can see the history of your pitch. So one thing that I noticed uh, frequently, this was a mistake that I made for a long time, which is, again, why I can recognize it in my students. Um, I, tend, I would scoop. Like, the very front of the note would be low, and then it would be right, you know? And so if you're just looking at a tuner, you think you're good because, like, maybe you get to the pitch. But mm -hmm. if you can actually see the history of your pitch and it's low, like, every time, <laughs> then you know you got a problem. Uh, Tunable is another app that does that. Cool. Well, I'm going to have to start playing with that a lot more. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, we're going to move on to our second segment. And uh, this is our obligatory discussion of gear, which every trumpet player needs to do at some point. It's right. uh, our geared up segment. And uh, this is actually uh, now brought to us by our good friends at Venture Mouthpieces, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. And uh, so let's talk about. Uh, your gear and not just so much like you know hey I, you know you you play this horn or this mouthpiece but mostly about your approach to gear uh you know certainly we can talk about what what you're playing on now but i like to know like you know why i want to know why people play what they play not not so much what they play but you know what are the benefits what are what are the concepts they look for in terms of uh performance and the right tool for the job so let's talk david dash's gear ideas <laughs> Okay, uh, well, I'm a Yamaha artist. I, I play Yamaha um, B-flat, C, and piccolo trumpets. Um, my E-flat is a Shoki. Um, you know, I think, I think the Yamaha horns have uh, um, like an ease of response that I really love, the kind of uh, fullness of the sound. They kind of buzz in a good way. Again, like talking about sound is so hard, <laughs> you know. But anyway, that's, those, are, those are terms that seem to, um, to come to my mind. Um, as far as mouthpieces, uh, I play a Warburton on my piccolo. Uh, I play a Yamaha Bob Sullivan model on my B-flat and C, um, but the throat is filled in. Actually, it's Mary's old mouthpiece. It's filled into a 25 throat. 
Um, the reason that I picked those mouthpieces, um, I played Park for quite a long time, and I think they make amazing mouthpieces. I really love them. Uh, I, honestly, I just tried this this uh, last version of, of mouthpieces uh, after going through probably five or ten others and uh, just liked it the best and, and that's it it seemed to have the sound that I was looking for a kind of richness in the sound and, and fullness and um, uh, just worked uh, for the piccolo again like it just works you know it's, uh, it's, it's the sound that I hear and so the mouthpiece just helps me make that sound well, you know, I, and that's an interesting uh, thing that you just said, because I know some people, their their advice about gear is go for comfort first. You know, like, you know, whatever you do, just, you know, make sure it's comfortable. Uh, the sound will come if, it, if it's comfortable. And then some people are driven by the sound and it's like, okay, well, if it sounds right, it doesn't matter whether it's uncomfortable. You just, you know, you, you'll get used to it. So I do you, and, and the truth is it, it lies somewhere in the middle of those two. Um, but you know, do you, like, if you're trying out gear, are you more easily swayed by the sound or by the, the comfort level? Um, to be honest, probably more the comfort level. Um, but it's, it's also just like if, you know, whenever I try equipment, I usually try a, a series of short phrases, you know, maybe a couple of things that I'm really comfortable with. And then I play a couple of things that are kind of at the limits of what I feel good about. And then I just see what functions better at those limits. And, it, you know, because that's where I'm trying to grow the most. So, the, mm -hmm. so it's like whatever helps me get that next like 2% better. Uh, that's, that's probably the direction I'm going to go in. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's great advice because, um, you know, I, I've had, a lot of people talk to me about uh, how they approach uh, personally or how they you know, tell their students or, or suggest to people to, to try gear. And um, that idea of play something that that's in your comfort level uh, consistently, you know, the, that, that you, you feel dependent upon and, you know, see how it feels across those instruments and then taking it to that extreme. And it seems that people like most people tend to get stuck in one thing or the other and having been at, at booths in, you know, conferences for way too long, mm -hmm. uh, it's usually they, they want to push the extreme a little bit more than they do want to play the, uh, the more consistent stuff. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I like that idea of having that balance between the two and, and just looking for the, the thing that, uh, that speaks to you, uh, you know, in giving you that, that little extra edge yeah. And I think you have to be a little bit of a scientist, you know, figuring out like typically smaller throats do this for me. Typically, you know, smaller, different rim shapes, different backboard sizes and shapes. You know, you, you kind of just have to try things out. And I have to say, I, I really like the Venture model. Uh, I purchased a, a few prototypes from Venture and um, I like that idea of cheaply being able to combine some different things just so you can test things out. Uh, not to have to spend, you know, $150 for a, for a custom mouthpiece. You know, maybe you spend... $25 for a part. I think that's what, what he was charging at the time anyway for a, a top or, or, a, or a shank. Yeah. And, uh, and then you can just make a spreadsheet, try it out, figure out the best version, bam. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then you don't have that big shoe box of uh, mouthpieces that you, bought, you know, brought at full price and, and <laughs> are just paperweights, man. But yeah, uh, yeah I, that, I like that. I really, I really uh, appreciate your concepts of, uh, of how to 
to look at gear and how you approach gear because that's uh i think that's one of the areas that you know if, if there is one class well there's actually lots of classes that i would want to have put into a, a curriculum for for a school of music but that would be one of them is mm. you know teaching people how to effectively you know find the gear that works for you that's a great idea i'm going to put that into practice yeah. i'll do that yeah make 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 that a offering there uh, uh or make make a part of apex i don't know this oh yeah Ooh, that's another good idea yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm full of great ideas yeah i could tell <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm full of a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> all right well we got one final segment to get through uh today and that is our robinson's remedies rapid fire round uh, that is a series of questions all over the place um just uh to to scramble your brain a little bit uh, but uh the questions go all over the place and, and david just want to get your quickest response to these bizarre questions so right. if you're ready <laughs> uh there you go here's the first question who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player uh probably my father okay what's your favorite book I am just wrapping up this book called Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And oh, yes. So Goggins. Oh, amazing. amazing. Yeah, I, I think everybody should be forced to read that book. Oh, so. Just incredible. So, so inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? I walked out of the leprechaun in the movie theater. The, the first leprechaun. It was a terrible, terrible movie. And they only got worse from there. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Um, I seem to like people a lot. You know, maybe I'd be a psychologist. Yeah, be a good one. Um, what's your favorite drink? Uh, I'm a fan of the scotch now and then, so probably Oban. Mm, okay. Nothing like a good single malt there. Um, you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people, any three people in the world. Who would you want to have at your party? Oof. Any three living people. Oh, my God. Any three living people. Um, uh, outside of my family, you know, which would probably be the first choice, uh, including Mary, of course. Um I'd love to. I'd love to talk to some 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 real leaders. So maybe Goggins, maybe Barack Obama. Uh, that'd be a fun person to talk to, and um, just to spice it up. <laughs> maybe I'd invite somebody for, with a completely different viewpoint. You know, maybe I'd get Glenn Beck in there or somebody. You know, and like really get some intense conversations. That would be fun. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a, an interesting, interesting evening. Um, and. And the same party, you're going to have three additional chairs, uh, and those are reserved for any three people in history. You can have any three people from history to uh, join this dinner party. God, this, I mean, geez. Uh, all right. Um, ben Franklin, Gandhi, and uh, uh, let's say uh, Richard Feynman. Okay. Again, a very, very interesting evening. Lots of good conversation. Um, lacquer, plated, or raw? Lacquer. All right. What's your favorite quote? 
my favorite quote. Oh, geez. Hold on a sec. I got. I have this uh, list of quotes that I that I pull from. Um, uh, so the most recent one, I'll go back to Goggins just because he's at the top of my list here. The ticket to victory often comes down to bringing your very best when you feel your worst. True. So true. Man, I love Goggins. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, what is your greatest fear? Death. Okay. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Uh, flying. Seems okay. fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, see, a lot of musicians choose flying. Really? I, okay. I, I think maybe it's just, you know, makes getting gigs a lot easier. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing? You know, this is, I, I feel very hypocritical saying this because I focus a lot on clarity, but probably clarity. Okay. <laughs> at uh, the, sorry, at the expense of like making, like an actual emoting, you know, through the instrument. Okay. Uh, what aspect uh, do you feel is the most underrated? Uh, being expressive. All right. Um, you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Um, trust yourself more. Let go. Just let go. Trust the music. Trust yourself. Okay. And while you're back there, you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. I think the same thing. Just trust yourself. Just it's all, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Relax. Have confidence. It's going to be okay. Just yeah, go for it. Life is music. And music yeah. is life. So it's all the same. All right. And the final question for you, David Dash, is what do you want your legacy to be? Um, I think from, my, from, from an educational perspective, uh, I would love to be remembered as somebody who who really cared, you know, somebody who lifted people up, who helped more than I hurt. Um, and musically, I, I think I'd like to be remembered as a, as a collaborator, somebody who was a, a good colleague and, um, you know, was part, just, just part of something larger and, and uh, just made it sound good, made, helped bring music to life. Okay. Well, those are all good things to aspire to. And, and I'm sure that uh, you've already got a little plan formulated and you're going to put in your spreadsheet later on. So. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for, uh, for the time today. This has been great getting to know you and uh, you know, I've been uh, following your, your exploits uh, on Instagram. So uh, I, We'll uh, certainly, if you want to follow David, just as he's on, he's on Instagram, we'll put the link down in the show notes. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about Apex, please check the show notes as well. Uh, if you can't make the next session, um, the fall session, uh, there'll be more coming up in the future. So uh, make sure you get on their, their mailing list and, and keep tabs of what's going on because uh, I'm sure that as great as this one is going to be, the next one is going to be even better. Uh, so, um, I thank you so much, my friend. I'm looking forward to the day where, uh, you 
and Mary and I and Duke and the rest of the clan can can, can sit down uh, across the table from each other, maybe with Barack Obama and Goggins, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and have uh, have some more conversation and some more laughs. So that's great. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, uh, having me on the on the show. It's my pleasure. And thanks for joining us for this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang. Make sure that you like, subscribe, share, uh, do all those wonderful things that, that you do on social media. And uh, as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of olive oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Mm-hmm.